Welcome to Increasing Returns, a podcast by Heller House. At Heller House, we take the concepts of value investing and apply them to the industries of the future. I'm your host, Marcelo Lima. Increasing Returns is for informational purposes only. Heller House most likely holds positions in securities mentioned. I hope you enjoy the episode, and if you like what you hear, follow me on Twitter at Marcelo P. Lima and subscribe to our email list at hellerhs.com. This week, we are back with another conversation with my friend Ryan Reeves, this time on Lemonade. We talk about the bull and bear cases for the company, the financial model, the importance of using imagination when thinking about the future, and what I think is the most interesting part of the conversation, competitive advantages or moats. This episode aired early last month on July 6, 2021. And remember, there's a transcript of this conversation linked in the show notes with lots of other links and illustrations as well in that transcript. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, on today's episode of the Investing City podcast, super happy to have Marcelo Lima on for a second time. So thanks for being here, Marcelo. My pleasure, Ryan. Nice to see you. You too. So yeah, let's talk about Lemonade. And I'll link to the show notes um, of our first conversation. But in this conversation, I would love to talk about Lemonade and, and just kind of breaking down the company and just how you heard about it and, and all the things. So uh, first, just love for uh, you to tell us about how you even came across Lemonade. Boy, how did I come across Lemonade? You know, probably um, just monitoring the companies that are coming to the public markets. And initially, I was very skeptical, right? I said, we, we have this reflexive knowledge from listening to Buffett and all the, all the value guys over decade plus that if you find a financial company that's growing very fast, it's usually a, a bad idea. It's usually very risky. It's going to blow up at some point. And so I was very intrigued, but I was very skeptical. And I thought this is uh, different. So the first thing I did is I, I guess I watched the, the IPO video, which anybody can go watch on their website. And I realized that this seemed at least to be a very different kind of animal. They are built on, as Dan Schreiber, the co-founder, says, they're built on this technology substrate, whereas incumbents are built on pen and paper and human knowledge. It's a little bit of this sabermetrics idea where now uh, a, co- a company that's built on software can use completely different tools. Now, obviously, if you look at Geico's hiring website, for example, they're hiring tons of data scientists. They're hiring uh, software engineers, people with skills in Snowflake and, and all these different tools. And that's you know granted. But it's also interesting to note that companies like JP Morgan Chase, which claim to be technology, you know, Jimmy Diamond says, we're a technology company. We have so many developers. They still don't get it. If you know what I mean, they they really can't hold a candle to digital native companies like Square, for example. It's very hard to change that um, DNA and to change the culture of a company. So given everything we know about organizational behavior, I approached this with a very open mind. I said, well, I'm skeptical, but I really want to hear the story and understand whether this is a different animal or not. And so that was sort of the first 
intro to the company. Uh, and there's actually a very interesting little book that got published telling the story of the company by a gentleman called Ty Sagalow. So he was, the, the story goes that Dan Schreiber and Shai Winninger, the co-founder, co they were introduced to each other uh, via a venture capitalist from uh, this Israeli venture capital firm. I think they're Israeli called Aleph. And so they met and they decided to go down the list of big industries that they could attack. And when they came upon insurance, they said, okay, well, there's something there. This is a trillion dollar industry. Everybody hates their insurance company. The experience is, is pretty bad. Can we do something differentiated here? So they whiteboarded all of these different ideas without knowing anything about insurance. Now, that is a huge red flag, right, in my book. <laughs> if, you, if you listen to uh, a lot of venture capitalists who fund these companies, a lot of them will say things like, well, we only like to talk to founders who have gone down the rabbit hole and hit their head against the wall for 10 years and they really figured out how to build this new type of company. This was sort of the opposite. These guys were didn't know anything about insurance, were completely new to the industry, and how can they possibly come up with something that works given their lack of expertise? But what they did is they actually came up with a very interesting ideas as far as uh, just approaching this with an open mind as far as what a delightful customer experience looks like. And then the story goes that they Googled insurance innovation and this guy, Ty Sagalow, shows up on Google. This is several years ago when the company was founded. So Ty is in his office in Manhattan and his phone rings. And it's like these two Israeli guys from across the you know the Atlantic. And they're like, hey, we're starting this company and we Googled innovation insurance. And you're the only guy who showed up. Can you come to uh, Tel Aviv and help us? <laughs> And so, and so he ended up uh, joining them as as another founder and really helping them understand the insurance part. Now that they had this idea, and so that's when I started becoming more, I guess, uh, uh, interested in this from an investment perspective because I started understanding the depth of talent that they then were able to hire into the company, insurance experts, people from the industry who who had obviously an open mind, but were willing to look at things with a, a, a fresh set of eyes. So that was sort of my my introduction to the company. And, and by the way, Ryan, I don't know if you, have you looked at this book or have you watched the IPO video yet? Yeah. So I, I haven't read the book, but I've done a decent amount of, of legwork on Lemonade. Um, yeah. So I actually, just real quick, I actually found out about Lemonade because um, I've held Fiverr for a while and I was reading in the shy Winninger and realized he left Fiverr and started Lemonade. And I was like, that's really interesting because I think Fiverr has huge potential, but this guy is leaving and starting a new company and kind of went down the rabbit hole on shy. And he is, he is amazing. I'll just kind of leave it off there. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's interesting. Recently I went back and I, and I used 99 designs and Upwork and Fiverr. And the experience on Fiverr, at least for what I was trying to do, was so vastly superior uh, that it was just incredible. And you can you can sort of feel that design ethos uh, that Shy brings to Lemonade now. 
and you can see his tweets, right? He's always sort of iterating on the product. The, the next thing I did then was I just listened to all the interviews I could with the founders because I really want to try to get inside their heads and understand where they're coming from, their perspectives, how they think. And I was very impressed. Uh, and I'm actually very impressed with the, I think it's his name is Michael Eisenberg. I'm sorry if I get, I'm getting that wrong, but the, he, the guy from Aleph uh, who introduced the founders, that's got to be one of the best introductions in the history of business, right? Just like two guys who didn't know each other and they just became great co-founders. Mm. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting just to kind of rehash a few things you said. So you got a fast growing financial company. It's already a red flag. And then you have two guys, no industry experience. And they're kind of going down the list, trying to find a big TAM to disrupt another like, oh, maybe they're sort of mercenaries rather than missionaries sort of thing. Um, so you listen to the interviews. And then what are some other things that you do to kind of gain conviction and kind of push through those, those red flags? Yeah, it, it, you know, it's fascinating that you say that because it's exactly what I thought, right? The mercenary versus uh, missionary dichotomy. There's one thing, though, that I've realized, which is pattern recognition. You have to be flexible as to how you apply it because the stuff that's going to work in the future, it's not going to look identical to what worked in the past. So, you, you really have to be very open-minded about d these different animals that you encounter. I, I like to use this sort of biological Darwinian uh, analogy that you're sort of in, you go to, I guess, you go to Galapagos and you're investigating all these different organisms and you're going to come across some pretty crazy things in business, new business models, new configurations of founders, ideas, et cetera, that you haven't seen before. And you just can't have this very, uh, very, very rigid model of how things should be. So I just listened to the founders. I obviously read the S1. I spoke to the company and I started, uh, everything started making sense to me. You know, what they were saying made a lot of sense to me. The way the company had evolved over time, growing even though their loss ratio was coming down. I did the math on their customer acquisition cost. It was improving over time. The, the premise made a lot of sense to me in the sense that an existing insurance company operates in a very traditional way and collects a certain amount of data. Whereas Lemonade is able to, through their digital onboarding, is able to generate a lot more richness of data on each customer. The, the most interesting thing to me was how they acquire those customers because they started out, as you know, with renter's insurance, which is very low premium. And because it's very low premium, a lot of other insurance companies don't offer it because it costs a lot of money to pay. You have to pay a commission to the agent usually mm -hmm. or to a broker. And there's not enough commission there because the premium is so low. So Lemonade starts with renter's insurance and they can do it because they acquire customers through an app. It's automated, right? And now those customers belong to Lemonade and they graduate over time. So they acquire that customer that the other that the competitors don't see because that customer is way too early in their 
life journey. Mm -hmm. And over time, that customer graduates and then and buys a condo or buys a house. The premiums go up 4x, 5x, et cetera. At the same original CAC, customer acquisition cost, they don't need additional uh, customer acquisition cost to get that in incremental premium. And then, of course, they can layer on other products. They introduced pet insurance, life insurance. They're close to introducing auto insurance. So that whole premise of land and expand, which is something that enterprise software companies do very well. So your Salesforce, you land on the CRM product, customer relationship management, and then use like, well, um, I also need um, MuleSoft, or I also need... Uh, perhaps uh, uh, data analysis. So I'm going to subscribe to Tableau. They have a whole host of different products that they can then cross sell you. Uh, and that's very typical in the enterprise software. So I just applied those ideas and I realized, the, you know, the whole the whole story made sense to me and the numbers corroborate, corroborated the story. Now, with something like Lemonade, it's, it's borderline venture investing because it's still very early in the company's life. So you you really have to have this imagination and look at the company, what is it going to look like five or 10 years from now and not really penalize them too much because they don't have today the metrics that they will have five or 10 years from now. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's really interesting. The, the idea of imagination, um, you know, like kind of growing up in value investing, you always think about margin of safety, margin of safety. Whereas this idea of imagination, like how big can it actually get is something that I think is, is still a little bit underrated in the public markets. Um, so I think it's really interesting you brought that up. Um, like one, one other thing I wanted to touch on was like, I, I actually use Lemonade. Um, so th that's after I like started researching it, I was like, oh, wow, this is a really interesting product. So actually used it uh, for homeowners insurance and it's, it was like unbelievably easy. I mean, just the, the customer experience is sort of like, it kind of reminds me of, you know, people sort of like hate on Tesla stock. And then the, the kind of meme is like, well, yeah, have you ever driven in one? It seems like similar with Lemonade or like, have you actually used um, the product? Because it's, I mean, I got my quote in like a minute. Um, didn't have to talk to anybody. So yeah, like I, I would love for you to kind of walk through that that imagination process specifically, and how you kind of what steps you took to understand like how big could Lemonade get. You know the the imagination thing is interesting because I I was very much the way you described in terms of the the value investor that only bets on what he can see, he or she can see, right? I, I think. In my mind, the, the dichotomy there is that the value investor is, is really looking at things as they are and is willing to pay for what he can see today. Mm -hmm. So I can open up the balance sheet and income statement and there's a big margin of safety on the current numbers. And that's all I'm willing to look at because I am a conservative value investor. And I'm not saying that making fun of it or anything because I, you know, I did that for, for many, many years. The, the difference, what I started realizing over time is that that mental model, at least for me, I'm not saying it's wrong for everyone, but at least for me, it just became very limiting because it, 
it, uh, I would end up not investing in a lot of things that were extremely profitable over many, many years for lack of this ability to underwrite growth. And what's fascinating to me is that even the godfather of value investing, as you know, Ben Graham, he invested in Geico in 1948. He bought, he put 20% of his fund in Geico. And it was a 145 bagger. I think it was 25% compounded over the next 20 years or something, 25 years. And he admits at the end of the, there's an appendix to the intelligent investor. He admits that that one investment in Geico did more profits, produced more profits to his fund than everything else he did together. That really intrigued me because the father of value investing ended up making more money from imagination. Not saying that he had the imagination, he was actually approaching it from a value investor's perspective. In fact, when he invested, he said, well, if I if this thing got liquidated, that's how he thought, right? If this thing got liquidated, I still have a margin of safety. So I'm gonna invest in it because he got a very low price. But over time, it was that imagination part that really made him the money if he had had this foresight. So I thought, well, why not apply that to everything? What's also interesting is I, a few years later, ran into Chuck Ockery at, um, at the Berkshire meeting. And I told him, you know, I've been coming here for 10, 15 years to the Berkshire meeting. And there are things that Buffett says that I've been hearing over because Buffett is very consistent. He says the same things over and over again. But only now is it really sinking in. And so Chuck reaches into his pocket and pulls out a coin. I don't know if you've seen this coin. And it says, Slow Learners Club, Charter Member. <laughs> and I thought that was so funny because I'm like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> and Chuck had said in an interview that, quoting Albert Einstein, that in imagination is more important than knowledge. And I thought that's super fascinating that an investor is bringing this up, right? Now, this is what venture capitalists do very well. The venture capitalist is able to, especially the guys at the seed stage, right? They're able to meet a founder who has a big idea, a big industry, and they're like, I'm going to bet on this guy. And a lot of times the, they're, they're going to pivot a million times because it hasn't worked out, et cetera. But they, they're betting on the person. In fact, Art Rock, when he retired, he he said, you know, if I could go back in time, I would have just torn up all the business models and I would have just looked at the red and just bet on the people because that's really what matters. So if you apply this to public markets, it's completely unknowable what these companies are going to do a quarter from now, two quarters a year, etc. What you can know, the part that is knowable is the quality of the people today and great entrepreneurs, great businessmen, they will figure it out. Essentially, that's what you're betting on is that these guys will be able to navigate. They'll be able to in, out-innovate, out-execute, out-think. Now, of course, nothing's guaranteed, but that's the bet. So if I can find founders like that, and if I can, you know, I use DCFs, even though 
I know that they're hugely problematic, but I use them as guardrails. I like to figure out this this uh, Michael Mobuson expectations investing idea of what is implied in the current market price. In other words, the current company's valuation is X billion dollars. Okay, great. What has to happen for that to make sense? And so you put it on a spreadsheet and you realize, wow, revenues have to be this much in 10 years. Margins have to be this much. The multiple has to be this much. And then you do an IRR and you get 20% and you're like, okay, do those assumptions make any sense whatsoever? Does that revenue number make sense? How? So that's a way to back into the current valuation that I think is very useful. So that in a nutshell is, I think, this idea of using imagination. And I think it's, um, like you said, I think it's very uh, underutilized because it's uh, in a way harder to imagine than it is to look at the numbers today. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, so I'd love to talk a little bit about the insurance business. Like how do you even think about lemonade versus competition and kind of what the economics will look like uh, five, 10 years down the, down the line? Yeah, so the... The company talks about this uh, on their on their IPO video, and I've I've talked to to the company a few times. The CFO has also given some very good interviews on on YouTube and at financial conferences. And you also you want to test consistency, right? You want to make sure that everything that the company is telling you makes sense, that they're consistent in how they're thinking. And I think the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, so, of course, this is an extremely competitive market. I think the differentiation here for Lemonade is the way that they acquire customers, the way that they apply technology, both uh, ingesting data, using machine learning to improve their underwriting, using machine learning to improve the, improve the claims experience, 30% of all claims are automated. They can increase that over time, and that dramatically lowers their cost. It's important to remember, right, software is highest leverage activity that we know of as humans. You, you have one developer sitting on a computer, can log on to Amazon Web Services, type some code, and boom, you can interact with billions of customers around the world and, and build something extremely powerful. So a company that can harness that and do it better than competitors can become a very powerful machine over time. So you know, the company has talked about having 13 to 17% operating margins over time and growing the, you know, they don't give any guidance as far as how many policyholders or policies enforced they can have. But right now, Lemonade has about a million customers. You can look at historical numbers and see how much they've grown over time. And so the way I think about it is I apply a growth function every year. And what does this, is this, what, what numbers are reasonable as far as year over year growth? And usually these numbers decline over time. So a company that's growing 60% today might be growing 50% next year and then 40% after that. And you know, by year 10, they might be growing in the teens. It de really depends on the company. 
And of course, you have inflection points where sometimes growth accelerates, you have acquisitions, you have uh, new things that, that, that exogenous shocks like COVID is, was an accelerant to a lot of companies that nobody could have forecast. So I know that these things are wrong, but it's, it's uh, again, those guardrails. So then you can look at number of customers, premium per customer, and today we have a certain number of premium per customer, and that goes hopefully up over time as customers attach to different types of policies, whether that's life insurance, pet insurance, future product introductions like auto insurance, which they've already teased. And you get to a number in 10 years or so, let's say, as far as revenues. And then you have to look at the industry. Well, what do the other insurance companies do? Is this reasonable? And I think the estimates that I have are, are reasonable. Um, I've put them out on Twitter to uh, test them against the bears. I'm super happy to engage with bears because uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, one knife sharpens the other, right? You, you need to, uh, if you have like sharp people to, to talk to, it, it improves your, your, uh, your underwriting. I say either your underwriting improves or it crumbles. So, you know, bring it on and, so far, I've seen a lot of uh, uh, pessimism from the pessimists, but I think all their points are valid, but uh, but I think time will tell. I think, I think the company will actually perform and they think the company will not. So that's really, I think, what it boils down to. What is uh, one like bear point that you come up again and again and what's wrong about that bear point? Probably the the biggest thing is there's no way that they're you know so insurance companies have two two big buckets of expense. One is the they call it expense ratio. One is loss ratio. So you give me a hundred bucks, I'm the insurance company, and let's say I spend uh, twenty five dollars to cover my overhead. At the end of the year you have a loss I have to cover you and I'm going to spend 60 or $70 to cover your loss, let's say. So that's the loss ratio and the $25 of my overhead, that's the expense ratio. The hypothesis is that at maturity, at scale, Lemonade, because it's able to process claims using software, that they will have lower expenses than incumbent insurance companies. Now, one way to test this is how many customers does the does the insurance company have and compare that to how many employees it has. And Lemonade is much more efficient than incumbents even today. And I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's I think it's three or four, maybe five times more efficient. In other words, they serve five times more customers per employee than an incumbent insurance company. Now that tells you something. They're able to light up new geographies, as you know. They, they start uh, operations in Germany, in France, Texas, without a single employee in those geographies. So that's very interesting. And and again, you look at the whole 
idea behind this company is a software substrate and and their machine learning uh, algorithm that improves over time. And you, again, can imagine that their assumptions about expense ratio at maturity will uh, will be true. The bears say there's no way. The bears will say Progressive is doing everything that Lemonade is doing. Uh, Geico is doing everything that Lemonade is doing. I think the retort to that is everything that we know from organizations and disruption, if you read Clay Christensen, tells us that it's very hard, if not impossible, for an incumbent that has been doing business processes a certain way for 50 years, 100 years in some cases, very hard for them to change those business processes overnight to respond to a new entrant that has a fundamentally different approach. And part of that is, imagine that you are the manager of one of these legacy insurance companies, and you have to completely upend, you have to fire a lot of people probably who don't have the right skills, who don't have uh, the software develop development background. You have to probably ditch a lot of technology that you have. Perhaps you're running mainframes with Fortran or COBOL or something else. You have to convince a lot of your managers that this new approach is better. It It challenges so many internal structures in these companies and so many fiefdoms that it's very hard to do. And we see that over and over again. Why is it so difficult for banks to respond to fintechs? Uh, these neobanks, digital first banks, call them whatever it is, and, and these apps that are now turning into banks like Cash App, one of my favorite examples. So... I think that's. I think that just waving your hands and saying Geico does everything that Lemonade does and Progressive does everything that Lemonade does, I think is kind of naive from that perspective. And I think that that is the strongest argument that I've heard against Lemonade ever reaching, not even improving on the expense ratio, but even reaching parity. They just say there's no way these guys are ever going to do. They're going to be as efficient as Lemon as Progressive or or Geico, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it really is the the classic example of bottoms up disruption coming in at the super low end with renters insurance, where yeah, like you said, no commission agent is going to want to service that. Um, so it, it's it's really interesting. One other thing that kind of going back to is the management team. So Dan and Shy, uh, like, what are some qualities that you saw in them that really piqued your interest and in, and made you kind of kind of believe in them. You know, I I think um, Dan um, Dan Schreiber said something that I think is so true. He said that storytelling is one of the most important skills for an entrepreneur. And it sounds, that sounds like something that a promoter would say, right? Sounds like something that a, 
a grifter would say, for example, like if you're a short seller, you're like, oh yeah, I got you, man. <laughs> you're, you know, you're just telling stories. I, I disagree. I think he's absolutely right. And the reason is, if you look at great entrepreneurs and even going back to Thomas Edison, for example, they need to inspire people to join them. They need to inspire really smart people to join them. And in order to do that, they need to tell a big story and sell this big vision and a mission. That's how you get incredible people to join you. And the greatest founders and entrepreneurs, they don't just say it, they believe it, right? They live it, it's in their veins. And I, I genuinely, genuinely think that Dan and Shai fit the mold. I really think that they are true believers, that they want to build a generational insurance company that does things very differently and that can achieve a very different result over time. So it's really, again, going back to uh, studying these guys and understanding the, the DNA and how they think and uh, how they've responded to challenges over time, that's given me the, the confidence that, um, that, that they can pull it off. Now, nothing is certain in business, right? The, the proof will be in the execution over time. So far, I think they're doing a fantastic job. And, and all, the, all the KPIs are moving in the right direction. And I, you know, there's not that many companies to compare them to. But if you look at Root Insurance, for example, Root has, uh, they have a lot more in terms of enforced premium because they do auto insurance, which is a big, bigger dollar amount. They're much smaller when it comes to number of policies. Um, they have a founder who is an actuary, so he's an actual industry expert. But it's hard for me to get super excited about the company. And I don't know what it's, it's like this hard to describe thing. Whereas with Lemonade, you get this very interesting feeling from the company that the company cares. And again, it's, it's, uh, you're using a different part of your brain. You're not using your analytical mind. You're not using your, you know, um, adding, you're not doing arithmetic, et cetera. You're not using your CFA, right, <laughs> to, to understand this. But that, I think, is part of, frankly, the edge is that for an investor is understanding this, having this emotional intelligence, I think. And you can, if you look back now, it's obvious in hindsight, if you apply this idea to a lot of other companies, things like Apple and Facebook, et cetera, where you, you have this maniacal founder that you look at the guy's history and his actions over time. And it just, it just gives you this, it paints a picture of somebody who is just not doing it for the money, but doing it for something much bigger. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting how you brought up storytelling and it kind of plays off of the incumbents difficulty and you, know, you might have to fire people that don't have the skills, but for them to actually hire people to like come want to work for Geico that have, you know, machine learning backgrounds, like, are they going to go to Geico or go 
to Lemonade, one of these other companies. It, it just seems like, I guess you could throw more money at them, but then there's like, they're going to be paid enough anyway. Like they're going to get paid in stock. So is that really a differentiator? It's really that mission. Um, so I, I think that that hits on a lot of different things. Um, so one thing that I'm interested in is like, what, what would sort of, uh, disconfirm your thesis or like what, what would cause you to change your mind on lemonade? Well, I think the biggest thing is in order for the investment to work, you have to, you have to be able to see an adoption curve, meaning we have the insurance comp industry exists already. There's, there's no, uh, there's, there's, Perhaps there's a little bit of new market creation here at the low end because they're enabling renter's insurance for people who wouldn't have had renter's insurance previously because it was maybe it's something they didn't think it was important. Maybe it was hard to get because there are not that many carriers. So there's a little bit of new market creation there. And by the way, a good analogy for this in my mind is Square because Square had the dongle that you attach to your phone and it lets you swipe a credit card. And that is new market creation. Those are, those are people who never would have gotten a merchant account and a, a real point of sale uh, device back in the day. And so that enables a new market, right? Now you can have cookie sales at school or kids selling slime and, 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 and much larger businesses doing that as well that previously couldn't do it. And over time, they Square moved up market and developed this beautiful cash register. And they have, if you look at their financials, the larger customers are actually growing faster now than the smaller customers. So that is also an example of low-end disruption. And payments is a very big, very competitive industry. And it's hard to tell how much new sort of de novo customers they're getting that didn't exist before and are enabled because of their technology. And similarly, I think for Lemonade, it's it's going to be hard to tell. I think it's actually going to be that they are displacing incumbents more than anything else. So right now they're competing with non-consumption, but over time they're going to be competing with consumption. So... What breaks the thesis for me is if that growth algorithm is broken over time in the sense that you wake up one day, you get quarterly results, and they haven't grown as fast as you thought, and and it, and it keeps happening, right? Perhaps it was a one-off, but then you see where they just hit a wall. Uh, that, to me, would sort of really break the the thesis because i think that if that were to happen that happens before they reach scale and can prove their economics right because by definition in order to prove their economics they have to be at scale and to be at scale they have to keep growing customer count no that makes a lot of sense um yeah is, is there anything that uh any other points that you want to touch on with lemonade any specific things that I didn't ask about? You know, I think you made a very good point about hiring because if you are a, let's say, smart computer science person uh, and 
you're, you're going to look for people like you to work alongside. And you're pr- more likely to find those people in a company that's digital native, like Lemonade, than you are at an existing company like Geico or Progressive. I'm not saying Geico or Progressive don't have a lot of really smart people. Of course they do. But it's just, uh, again, it's that, it's that feeling thing, right? If I am, if I'm a young CS grad or, or CS um, computer science person, and I'm looking for somewhere that can stimulate me and where I can get interesting mentorship, where I admire the, the management team, you know, Dan Schreiber is a lot more visible than Todd Combs, right? The CEO of Geico. Like maybe if Todd were on Twitter and giving interviews on YouTube channels and things like that, uh, he'd have, you know, he would be able to hire more people. But that's, I think, also part of the genius of the storytelling advantage. Uh, A lot of these tech CEOs are very, very good at marketing themselves. And that's a skill and that's a competitive advantage because... If I'm a potential employee, I'm going to see that and I'm going to be like, hey, I want to work with that guy, you know, mm-hmm. uh, whereas CEO of Progressive or Geico, they're, I don't know anything about them. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's it kind of made me think of like as investors, we sort of think of the moats as these very static things where, okay, you have network effect. Okay, I check the box, you know, switching costs, check the box versus I feel like reality is much more dynamic where if, like you said, a CEO has amazing storytelling skills, maybe they just marginally hire that person who they really wanted to get. And that person goes on to create, you know, a 10% improvement in the AI algorithm for Lemonade, which lowers loss ratios, which allows them to invest more and more. It's like that one little thing contributed to like a, a leap forward versus a competitor. And, you know, it's so hard to really, you can't really know everything about these companies. You know, they have times thousands of employees. It's impossible to know everything that goes on under the covers, but uh, it's really interesting to try to figure out those, those things that are the difference makers versus viewing moats as, as these static things. Yeah. You, you can see this in companies like where, You've had a, a lot of storytelling from uh, reporting. So, for example, Amazon, there's the Everything Store and now there's Amazon Unbound, right? Both books by Brad Stone. And you, so you see the history of Amazon. There were a lot of key employees over time mm-hmm. that made a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And we know the same thing is true about Facebook, for example. And those are just two examples, but people really obviously matter and being able to attract people who are who are like-minded who have that um that missionary zeal to change the world is super important and i again i i strongly feel that that person that potential person is going to be a lot more attracted to a company with this uh that's very visible very digital native that has espouses similar values. And, and like you said, that is, I think a, it's what else is it, but if not a, if not a part of the moat, right? Hmm. Yeah. It, 
I guess the other thing that kind of comes to mind is you have like this idea Buffett always talked about where um, basically you have like a really good business and really good management. The, the business will always kind of win out. You know, you, you have to really focus on the business because management can only do so much. Um, and so you have like this idea at the same time, while, you know, obviously hiring the best people is of utmost importance and that will really differentiate. So do you have any thoughts on, on that just as, as we talk about this? Yeah, I, I, that's why I only look at good industries <laughs> because I, that is, that is something that remains true. <laughs> if you have a management team that tackles an industry with, with a rep, a fantastic management team with a great reputation that tackles an industry with a reputation for poor economics. It's the reputation of the industry that will remain intact, right? Roughly what Buffett said. And and I think that's true. That's why, for example, I, I focus on what I think are great industries. Um, and insurance, you can build a very good business. By the way, one exercise I did before this this uh, this podcast with you is I went on Bloomberg and I pulled up a bunch of insurance companies and I plotted their uh, operating margins and exp- and combined ratios because you know roughly speaking an operating margin of fifteen percent implies a fully loaded if you will combined ratio of eighty five percent including loss adjustment expenses and all that and I wanted to make sure that. People, you know, one of the bear, the bears were saying, "Oh, that's impossible. Those companies don't exist." Well, it turns out they do exist, and not that many of them. Uh, most insurance companies, as we know, ha- do not have fantastic economics. They tend to break even on their underwriting, and they make money on their um, investment float. Mm-hmm. Although that's increasingly hard today because of very low interest rates. The really good ones are the ones that are able to do both. Um, Lemonade, I don't, I give, there's no credit at all for insurance, for investment gains at all. I don't think that's part of the thesis at all today because, again, no company today is able to invest the way Buffett does uh, in equities and things like that. And it's, if they, if they do well, it'll really be from the combined ratio. So, I, I do think it's very important to focus on on great companies, on great industries, and then find the best founders. So that, that way you have the best of both worlds, right? So you find great industries and fantastic founders. Uh, I, I don't believe in lousy industries, even if they have a fantastic manager. Um, it's it's a tough proposition. Do you, do you have any counter examples of that? Um. Not really off of the top of my head. I, I was just kind of, I appreciate that you brought up insurance because, uh, you know, you don't think of insurance as this amazing industry, but I mean, Progressive and Geico have been amazing performers. So there definitely are examples where it's like a, you know, obviously an insurance isn't uh, whatever, enterprise software, right? No, no industry really is. Uh, but they're, with really, really giant industries, it also widens the playing field. Like 
insurance is pretty consumer facing, which just widens the TAM a ton. Um, so there, there's trade-offs, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, there, there are, like, there's a lot of very successful industrial conglomerates, which I wouldn't think of as necessarily like amazing industries that have very specific process power. Um, yeah, but, but insurance, like you said, there, there are examples where there are really good companies in there. Yeah, and Buffett over time, right, has identified some really good executives in insurance, right? So those people exist. Now imagine if you could uh, give them superpowers with software, right? Mm. So I think that that's the, um, and I don't think you need an Ajit Jain to run <laughs> Lemonade. It's not, they're not doing exotic insurance, right? Like, like Ajit is doing. Mm. So by yeah. the way, it's interesting that in that little book, uh, there's a picture of Ty Sagalow and Ajit Jain. So Ajit had the opportunity to invest in Lemonade, but he chose not to. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, so who was Ty Sagalow? Like, what did he do before helping out Lemonade? You know, I, I don't know um, because I, I read his book and, and I looked him up. He's not involved with the company anymore. I think he was a co-founder and then I don't think he's, I don't even think he's on the board of directors. Mm-hmm. So it didn't didn't matter very much, but he was some guy involved in, 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 who had was a was a veteran of the insurance industry and f- for some reason interested in innovation in, in, in insurance. I don't really know what that meant right. uh, before before Lemonade. I don't know what his activities were, but but he was I think uh, very helpful. At least that's what you you gather. Obviously, he wrote the book. Um, it's a it's a thin book. It's it's not substantial or anything like that. But uh, the company is only a, a few years old anyway. So, mm. well, hey, I mean, I've kept you almost an hour already, but I really appreciate you breaking down Lemonade. I mean, a company that is very interesting has a lot of optionality. You know, moving into auto insurance. One quick thing is life insurance. I didn't realize how giant an industry life insurance is. And they kind of just like snuck term life in there. Um, so yeah, like you said, that land expand motion is really interesting. Only a million customers. I mean, it's, it's quite plausible. They have a global market. Who knows what's kind of the upper limit of that. Um, so I think it's a very interesting company. So I, I appreciate you coming on and, and breaking it down for us. Hey, Ryan, it's, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Increasing Returns by Heller House. For more information on what we discussed in this episode, check out the show notes. If you like this episode, please consider rating it on iTunes and leaving a review. This helps others find the show. We'll see you next time.